Good morning, everyone. Uh, whether you've been joining us uh, each Sunday at our online worship service, or maybe you're just hopping in for the very first time, welcome. Uh, welcome to my home. I'm so privileged that you've invited me into yours. And I pray that today, today has been and it will be a real encouragement to you in your faith and, uh, and an encouragement to you as we walk through this difficult time of the coronavirus pandemic. I am excited to be able to share from God's word with you today. Just before I do that, um, I want to make you aware of a tool that we've developed for you to use this week uh, as a devotion. Uh, so it's something we're calling the Holy Week Prayer and Meditation Guide. Uh, it's eight days, starts today, runs through next Sunday. And on each day, there is a scripture passage for you to read, uh, some questions for you to think about and discuss with others, uh, some prayer prompts, and then an action step. And so right now on our website, you can uh, find that uh, let's go to cbcjoy.org. You can find that uh, prayer and meditation guide. Or if you're a little bit more uh, kind of a one, of the day, one day at a time kind of a person, just stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll again put that up each day. Uh, you'll have the scripture passage, those questions, some prayer prompts, and that action step each day. So we really uh, pray that that's a blessing to you, uh, to encourage you to engage uh, with the, the stories that are part of this last week of Jesus' life, as well as um, prepare us to celebrate the great truth that he is alive next Sunday, which is Easter. That Easter, or the, this Holy Week uh, begins, oftentimes we, we, uh, we can refer to it as Passion Week sometimes too, but it begins with uh, the triumphal entry. We had some fun with that, Rich and his daughters at the beginning of the service, and uh, at that at that moment, uh, what was going on there is in the city of Jerusalem, uh, many, many people were gathered there to celebrate a feast known as the Passover. So this large crowd had gathered, and as Jesus came into the city to celebrate that same feast, they put their cloaks on his uh, donkey and his colt. They were waving palm branches, and they cheered, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Yes, the King of Israel. And in Matthew's gospel, uh, we're actually told that this is a fulfillment of prophecies spoken many years prior by Isaiah and Zechariah when they declared, Say to the daughter of Zion, or Israel, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy fulfillment, this affirmation, this declaration that Jesus is king, well, that's what I'd want to camp with you around the day. So what I want to focus on today. And uh, just before we go any further, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you for the technology that makes it possible. And as so many of us are gathering uh, around your word in the presence of your Holy Spirit, we pray that he, your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. We pray, God, that uh, when we're done today, it wouldn't be that we just have a little bit more information about uh, Jesus or a particular part of the Bible, but in, that instead you would use this time to transform us, to change us. So we offer our, our minds, our hearts, our attention, our wills up to you. And we pray that you, by that truth and with your power, would make us more into the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, uh, Jesus, just like all of the others who were gathered there in Jerusalem that uh, week, was gathering for the Passover feast. Now, we don't have time to go into the details about that this morning, but I encourage you to check that out on your own. 
you can go to the book of Exodus, second book of the uh, Old Testament, uh, book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 11 and 12, and you can learn about all about what the Passover feast was about. Uh, but in short story, uh, basically at the time when Jesus is experiencing it, it's a, it's a commemorative meal, a meal to remember a dramatic act by which God delivered uh, through a man named Moses and, and a particular uh, act of, of grace that God performed, that he delivered his people Israel out of the nation of Egypt and the slavery that they were experiencing there and led them eventually into the promised land that Jesus is coming to experience that Passover feast, again, is the kickoff of this, of this uh, Holy Week. And when you read about, when you di dig into the scripture and you, and you check out everything that happened between the triumphal entry and uh, Easter morning, uh, when you see all of that stuff, there's, there's so much there. Uh, there's, there's Jesus interacting with his vociferous opponents, with maybe his enemies, we might call them, and uh, in, 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 the, in that interaction with them. Jesus offers to them some of his most absolutely most pointed teaching. Uh, he, he pronounces on them seven woes, and it's, it's very, very hard teaching that he presents to them. He also uh, shares with his followers, uh, too, some important challenges, some important reminders, some important words of comfort. There's lots of uh, parable telling by Jesus. Interestingly, there's, uh, as you might imagine, there's some deep emotional displays by Jesus. He expresses heartfelt sorrow over Jerusalem and the fact that, uh, to a large degree, they were rejecting him. He exhibits uh, some real anger in his second cleansing of the temple as he drives out the money changers who were there to exploit the people who were coming in. There's some intrigue. Uh, we have murder plots and plans for betrayal. We have some backroom deals going on. We have this intimate gathering, this Passover meal that Jesus is going to share with his, with his closest friends, with those first followers, with those 12 that he had designated as his apostles. And as he shares that meal with them, the, the last meal that he will share with them while his, uh, before he dies, he shares that meal with them. He, he teaches them and shows them some powerful lessons, things that will be burned into their memories forever um, after he's gone. At the end of that meal, Jesus and his followers head out to a place known as the Mount of Olives. And, and there, Jesus uh, goes, takes a couple of them, goes to what's known as the Garden of Gethsemane. In that garden, the word Gethsemane means uh, it's, a, it's a place of, of pressing. It's a place where olives were pressed out into oil. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus there. He literally is, is pressed out. He goes there to pray because... He's anticipating his, his arrest. He's anticipating his trial and the, the accusations. He's anticipating the beating that he will receive. He's, an, he's anticipating uh, his crucifixion, his own death. And as he prays to his heavenly father, he is in such deep agony that sweat drops of blood fall to the ground from him. At the end of that time in the garden, Jesus is arrested and after he's arrested, he's, his first stop after his arrest is, is at the home of, again, some of those opponents. Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest of Israel at that time. So he meets with those guys and then also eventually meets with the 70-member the ruling council, spiritual ruling council of Israel, known as the Sanhedrin. After he's done there, they take him to the palace of a man named Pontius Pilate. 
Pilate was the, the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea, in which that's what uh, the province that Jerusalem is in. He served under uh, the emperor Tiberius for about 10 years and finished at about the year uh, 37. And this, this interaction between Pilate and Jesus is kind of where I'd like us to focus today. It's in John 18, and, and about that interchange, uh, Leon Morris, uh, a scholar and a commentator, says this. John paints a vivid picture of kingship. The kingship of this world as seen in the might of imperial Rome, that is, uh, everything exhibited by Pilate, standing over against real kingship as seen in the lowly Son of God. That Jesus is king is a most important concept for John, and he brings it out again and again and again in the crucifixion narrative. Well, Jesus arrives there at the gubernatorial palace in kind of the wee hours of the morning. And as he, as he gets there, I'm sure that Pilate is probably none too pleased. It's an interruption to his, to his day. He kind of sees the Jews as an interruption to his life anyway, kind of an inconvenience. And so there's this brief interchange that he has with the Jews, according to John's gospel, shortly after they come. And and basically he's asking them, what, well, what, what has this guy done? Like, kind of like, why are you bothering me with this? And they say, listen, the Jews say, listen, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't bringing, be bringing him to you in the first place. And maybe Pilate's just, maybe he's tired. Maybe he had a hard night. Maybe he didn't sleep, sleep too well. Maybe he's just frustrated with them. He says to them in verse 31 of John 18, listen, take him by yourselves and judge him by your own law. Like, almost like, you know what? Deal with this guy yourself, Okay. He's a Jew, you're Jews, just deal with it. Well, the, the Jews object to that because they say to Pilate, listen, we don't have any authority to pronounce death upon anyone. We, we don't have that authority, and so we want you to deal with it. Well, Luke's retelling of this uh, interchange between Pilate and, and the Jewish people who brought, him, brought Jesus there includes mention of the Jews telling Pilate that Jesus had claimed to be the Christ, and that is a king. And so... When, Jesus, when Pilate comes back after this interchange with, the, with the, uh, the Jews, Pilate comes back to Jesus and this first question that he asked Jesus, and it's found in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, found in all four, and it's couched in the exact same way. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And I, I say it that way because the, the you is emphatic in all four, uh, four representations in all four Gospels. It's almost like Pilate is saying, listen, you, you, you're the king of the Jews? A pilot would have expected something very different from a king. Jesus didn't strike him as an outlaw, didn't strike him as a revolutionary, a member of the resistance movement, not this lowly guy. Not, he, he wasn't king material, and so the Jews must be mistaken, and that's why Pilate says it the way he says it when he's like, are, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, outside of these narratives that are kind of like giving us the story of this, the last week of Jesus' life, this Passion Week, the only other occurrence of this phrase, King of the Jews, is, is found in Matthew 2. And it's, it's there when the Magi who came to visit the two, three-year-old Jesus, bringing him gifts, said this in chapter 2, verse 2 of Matthew, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. But for John, John uses the phrase five times in this story. It's, it's clear that it is important to John that the crucified Jesus is seen to be king, and rightly so. Though Jesus as king is, 
is, is a very different sense than what Pilate meant and how he understood the term king when he asked Jesus the question, are you king of the Jews? Well, in John, we get a little bonus uh, reel. We get a little, we get a little uh, extra stuff, some, some added detail of an expanded dialogue that doesn't exist in the other gospels. And uh, in, in response to the question, are you king of the Jews? Jesus says back to Pilate, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? It might seem at, at surface level that Jesus is trying to evade Pilate's question, but I would suggest to you that he's not evading it. He's not trying to not answer it, but he's actually trying to clarify it and teach in it. You see, if Pilate was asking of his own volition, was Jesus like all the kings of all the nations and as such, was Jesus rebelling against Rome? Well, the answer to that is no. But if it came from what the Jews were saying about him, and of course Jesus knew that it did, then the query is really this. Are you God's Messiah, the king whom God will send, the king whom God promised to send? The answer to that is yes. Political ruler? Nope. Messiahship? Spiritual ruler? Absolutely. And, and by the way, it wasn't just Pilate. It wasn't just those Jews that brought Jesus. Remember all those people who were shouting praise, waving those palm branches, uh, giving up their coats, expressing this worship and adulation of Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't really get it either. When they were proclaiming him as king, they didn't think of Jesus as king in the way that Jesus understood himself as king. They didn't get it. The Jews who brought Jesus didn't get it. Pilate didn't understand it. And even Jesus' first followers, those ones that were with him for three-ish years, the ones who saw his power, who heard his authoritative teaching, after he had been killed and been buried and been resurrected from the dead and had spent time with them for 40 days after that, and then was about ready to ascend back to the Father in Acts 1.6. It's almost a bit of a humorous statement when they ask Jesus in Acts 1.6, uh, Rabbi, like, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? No one got it. That's the problem. Well, when Jesus asked this question to, back to Pilate, Pilate responds in verse, uh, in verse 35 by saying, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? It's almost like with a little bit of disdain in his voice that Pilate is sharing this. Like, listen, again, frustrated with these guys bringing you to me, kind of frustrated with how you're dealing with me, Jesus, in all of this. And so he says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Almost like saying, don't, 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 don't try to bring me into this thing, this conflict you have with all these people outside my palace. Jesus Answers, answers Pilate, who again asks him, what have you done? Jesus answers by saying, and, and continuing in that narrative in John, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. This, in this interchange between Pilate and Jesus, we begin to understand an important aspect of the kingdom of Jesus and that it is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom did not originate in this world. It is not the product of any of the forces that this world generates, nor does it conform to the ideas that this world produces. 
Jesus is clearly not referring to a kingdom that's anything like any of those that any of us might have ever known. It is one that came from outside of all that we have experienced, outside of anything that could ever be created by humanity, ever, anything that we've ever experienced. Well, Pilate, after Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world, Pilate kind of, in a very succinct way, just answers back to Jesus, well, uh, you are a king then. <laughs> in the synoptics gospel, synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the, the same answer is given. Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. And again, in John, we have some of that more, some of that bonus coverage, some of that added detail where Jesus says, I was born for this and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responds to, uh, with, a, with a question that's often, again, been held up as almost like one of the key questions for all people of all times. What is truth? I'd like to use Jesus' words there about this kingdom not being, his kingdom not being of this world. And dig in then to then, if it's not of this world and we don't really understand, then what is it? Jesus said that he came to testify to the truth. What is the truth about his kingdom? Well, I'm not one of those pastor teacher types who uh, always alliterates their messages. Uh, alliteration is when you take like your major points and the and the, and the first letter of all those major points in the first word that kind of is the same. So they're all T's or all J's or all K's or whatever the case might be. Well, today it just so happens that they are that way. It is alliterated. And so I'd like to just share, for you, share with you five things about the kingdom as we think about Jesus and what he said and, and what he came to do to testify to the truth, to represent to the truth, kind of coupled with Pilate's question of what is truth. Let's see the truth about Jesus as king and his kingdom. The first thing, word then is present. The kingdom is present. Now there's two ways to kind of understand this. And the first is just that, that the kingdom is present. Jesus brought it. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He repeats those, almost has, has the, that same idea in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near, has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Also in, in Luke chapter 17, verses uh, 20 and 21, as Jesus was being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. So no one will say, see here, or it's over there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. I have brought it, Jesus is saying. And not only then, not only did he bring it then, but he brings it now. His kingdom is always present. One of some of the last words that, that Jesus gave before he ascended back to the Father was as he gave his followers their marching orders of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. At the end of that directive, he said to them, I will be with you always to the end of the age. The kingdom is present in Jesus. Secondly, the kingdom is a present, meaning he bought it for us. 
It is present, he brought it. It is a present, he bought it. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus interacting with a man by the name of Nicodemus tells him this, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's the thing about the kingdom. It is a gift. We don't earn it, buy it, steal it, or sneak into it. There's nothing we can do to merit entrance into it. We're invited into God's kingdom by his grace. How do we come into the kingdom? Jesus says, you come into the kingdom by being born again. How are we born again? How are we made a new creation? When we receive by faith God's incredible offer of grace in the, sh in the shed blood of Christ to wash away our sins, to create in us, make us a new person in Christ Jesus. When that happens, when that second birth happens, when that recreation or regeneration happens, when we are born again, we will be part of the kingdom of God. But it's a present. Again, we can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't somehow maneuver our way into it. But it is a present, a gift from God through the work of Jesus Christ. So the kingdom is present, and it is, it is a present. Secondly, the kingdom is one of power. The kingdom is one of power. Jesus' life uh, began in power. His, uh, his earthly mother, Mary, when she received the message from the angel Gabriel that she was going to give birth to a son, she, she was uh, perplexed, she was confused, uh, because she knew about herself that she had never been with a man in such a way that would have produced a child within her. So she didn't understand how this whole thing was going to go down. And so she asked the angel, uh, how can this be? And the angel says to her that, that the Holy Spirit would come on her. And in Luke 1.35, he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus' life began in power. His earthly ministry was filled with power. He taught with power and authority. He healed people of all sorts of diseases and ailments. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. He performed all sorts of miracles, like changing water into wine, or the one we looked at last week where he spoke to the wind and the waves and a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the wind stopped, and the waves and the, and the sea became perfectly still. Jesus was a man of power. He is and he was a powerful king. And the kingdom is one of power. Jesus says to us, to, his, to, to those first followers, again, right before he was about to ascend back to his father, he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and in fact, everywhere you go throughout the entire world. You will receive power. Power from my spirit, power from the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes from my Father to you. That's the power of the kingdom. That word that we translate power, it's the word Greek word dunamis. You can see how we get our word dynamite for that. We have explosive spiritual capacity based in the fact that we have the Spirit of God living within us. And that's exactly what Scripture says is going on. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says to those believers, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Think of that. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that we will celebrate next week 
uh, as we commemorate this, the, the, the truth that the, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is resurrected, that he is alive and coming again, coming again. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Kingdom is one of power and one of presence. Now, this is going to be something that you may, it may make you kind of shake your head a little bit. But the kingdom of Jesus is actually, it actually has some problems. You're like, wait a second, what's that mean? Well, think about it. The king of this otherworldly kingdom was, that is Jesus. He was, he was hated by many, rejected by most, betrayed by a friend, falsely accused, severely mistreated, wrongly convicted, and unjustly killed. According to the prophet Isaiah, listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases, paraphrases the human experience of the Messiah that we know to be Jesus in Isaiah 53. He says he was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. as problems, right? One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. Our Savior knew problems. Our Savior, he experienced the full gamut of everything it meant and does mean to be human. All that we experience, all of that stuff, all of that pain, all of that, all of those problems, well, guess what? Our King experienced it. He knew. One look at him, people turned away. They looked down on him. They thought he was scum. He knew pain firsthand. And and you want to know what it means to be a a person in the kingdom? Well, again, kind of an interesting passage to consider as we think about that. In Matthew chapter 5, what's known as the Beatitudes, uh, a section in in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says, blessed. Now, sometimes we say that to each other, right? Like someone will ask you, how are you doing? And some, some people like to respond, I'm so blessed. And that's not a bad thing to say, but I don't think they mean it exactly the way Jesus means it. When he says, again, in Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the, here it is, kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, that kingdom of heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Interesting thing about living in the kingdom. Problems are still a part of it for now. Jesus said it in Matthew 5. He also said it in John 16. He told his followers, listen, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Why do they need peace? Because the very next sentence of that verse, in this world, you will have trouble. I've shared that verse a couple of times with you over the last several weeks. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We will have trouble. We will be blessed if we're persecuted because of righteousness. That's what it means to be a person in the kingdom. In the book of James, in the book of 1 Peter, multiple parts of the uh, multiple sections of the New Testament all talk about the purpose of trials and struggles and problems that exist in the life of the believer 
To be a person in the kingdom is not to be problem free. In fact, sometimes because you're a person in the kingdom, problems can actually grow. The fourth thing about the kingdom is the word purpose. Jesus saw the kingdom as his purpose. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee. This is near the beginning of his ministry, his public ministry. He was teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Those, that little triad there is, it shows up at various times in Jesus' ministry. Uh, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease among the people. It also says something kind of similar in uh, Mark chapter 1. It says a little bit different. Jesus says there, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus also in, uh, in Mark, Matthew 9, 35, had, uh, uh, the, the words that are, that are found in, Mark, in Matthew 4 are almost repeated as he's on kind of another section of his uh, ministry, ministry career. Jesus also says in Luke 4, 43, when he was uh, explaining why he needed to live, leave, kind of like his, his home base, says, I need, to, I need to leave here because it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. It was his purpose. It's also the purpose of his followers. Philip, who was the, one of the first deacons in the church, about his ministry in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it says again, he was preaching the good news of the kingdom. Paul, in his, uh, in his goodbye to the Ephesian uh, elders in, in um, Acts chapter 20, he, he states that he had gone about preaching the kingdom when he was with them. And later, near the end of Acts, in fact, the very last verse of Acts is as it talks about what Paul's ministry was in Rome when he had gotten there. And he spent two years in Rome in the very last verse of Acts chapter 28, the very last book of the book, the last verse of the book itself, it talks about how Paul was shared the good news of the kingdom. Jesus referred to the kingdom's importance when he said this in Matthew chapter 24. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world, in the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the purpose uh, Jesus' purpose was to proclaim the kingdom. It's clear that his first followers, their purpose was to, were, was to proclaim the kingdom. And not only our purpose, but the kingdom is to be our passion. You know, one of the things that we're struggling with right now, as a, and I, I know I am, and, and, and maybe you are as well, is, you know, there are some things that we're worried about. There are some, there are some things that we're anxious about. And uh, I just commend you a, a portion of scripture from Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. It's back in that, that Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus there begins in verse 25 by saying, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. And he talks about all the things that we worry about, like what we'll drink and what we'll eat and what we'll wear, all those, th those very base concerns. And, and we have concerns like that in our own lives right now. And Jesus says to us that, listen, by worrying, you're not going to add a single hour to your life or another hair to your head or another inch to your height, depending on uh, exactly what he meant in that, in that, in that little, uh, you know, illusion and, that he uses. In other words, worry doesn't benefit you at all. He finishes kind of near the end of this section by saying, 
Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Don't worry about your life. Don't be consumed with all this stuff you see around him. Remember, what did he say? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom came from outside this world. And so as I invade this world with my kingdom, he says, seek first it. Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. If we can have that as our focus, we can then leave, lean into and live into that very next verse where Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has its own problems. And worry doesn't help you with it. So seek first his kingdom. So the kingdom is our purpose to proclaim and it's our purpose to pursue. The last thing is that the kingdom of Jesus, it does end in perfection. Because it began in perfection. Because our king is perfect. Our king is perfect, meaning he is without sin. The Bible teaches according to Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are. He faced every sort of temptation that you faced and that I faced. And yet he was without sin. Sinless. Perfect. Now, what about us? Well, we're not, we're not perfect, but we have been made perfect by receiving the righteousness of Jesus. So the Bible does call us perfect, not because it's what we do, but what God has done for us. And secondly, Jesus also calls us to pursue that. He reminds us that that is our calling in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But it is not in our own strength. It is only through him. He, Jesus, is the source. He's the founder. He's the perfecter of our faith. And so as we pursue his kingdom, we, uh, and, and pursue his righteousness, what, uh, what happens is he begins to perfect us more and more and more and more. And yes, there will be a day. There will be a time. There will be a moment when we will begin to, for all eternity, realize the kingdom of God in its absolute, complete, and total perfection. There will be a time when the King of Kings, as he's called in Revelation 17 and 19, he will make perfection not just a dream for us, not just a hope, not just something which is right now off in the distance, but he will make perfection our reality. Listen to the words found in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. John, who received this revelation from God, had a vision of what was coming. And this picture that he shares with us is such a powerful and hopeful truth. Verse 3 of chapter 21, John says, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, well, who, whose voice might that be? Who's on the throne? The one who's typically on the throne is the king. So it wouldn't be wrong for us to say, I heard a loud voice from the king saying, now God's presence is with, his, is with people and he will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. This is bringing the story of God and humanity full circle. 
God created humanity, those first human beings, and he was in absolute perfect relationship with them. Sin broke that relationship and it was lost. God continued to pursue relationships with humanity. And we have the story of that in the Old Testament and in the way that he pursued a relationship with his people, Israel. But all of those things fell short, not because there was something wrong with the way God was pursuing, but was wrong the way in which the humans were experiencing it. So God sent his son, whose name was Emmanuel, God with us. Again, the presence, the relationship reestablished. And in his death, he opened that way up that we might have relationship with him again. We walk in the reality of that relationship now, but the fullness of that relationship will be realized in that day when that voice from the throne says, God himself will be with them and will be their God forever. He goes on to say, that one on the throne, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And check it out, guys. There will be no more death, sadness, crying, or pain. No more death, sadness, crying, or pain. Something we're really acquainted with right now, right? Because all the old ways are gone. The one who is sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new, perfection, complete and total. It's not just a pipe dream. If what the king says is true, it's our destiny. That's the kingdom. The kingdom is present and it's a gift. It is a present. The kingdom is one of power, even though at times we do have problems. Kingdom is our purpose, our purpose to proclaim it, our purpose also to pursue it. And the kingdom is founded by a perfect king and ends in absolute perfection. I pray that this morning you might hear the voice of God himself inviting you in to the kingdom life. The one thing that I can guarantee is that that kingdom life is one that is absolutely God's base desire for you to have. I don't have a lot of other guarantees to offer other than the fact that it is his will for you, that you would submit your life to the authority of King Jesus. He's inviting you into that today. Just before Emma and Rich come back with a closing song, would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing us what your kingdom is all about by giving us your son as king. Thank you, King Jesus, for leaving the beauty and the majesty and the tranquility of the heavenly realm to embrace the human experience. Thank you for bringing your kingdom to us, God, in your son. I pray right now that, Lord, that 
you would just be speaking to people that are watching this video or listening to it, that you would be drawing them to yourself. That they would be turning from the ways of this world, turning from their own agendas and embracing the kingdom of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you again for this truth. And we pray that we would, we would be able to answer Pilate's question, what is truth, with, with this clear affirmation. What is truth? The truth is this. Jesus is king. And he's my king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.